there's a principle I learned about. I'm a geek fact. I learned a good geek fact this week, so I shoot on message. Um, there's a, there's a, a principle in the world known as Price's Law. It states that only a small fraction of all the producers of things in the world um, will be prolific at it. So, the majority of scientific papers are published and done by a very small group of scientists. In literature, just a handful of authors sell all or the majority of the books in the world. In music, a tiny proportion of all musicians produced almost all of the recorded music in the world. Similarly, it's just four classical composers, Bach, Beethoven, Beethoven, Mozart and Tchaikovsky, who wrote most of all the music played by modern orchestras. In language, 90% of all of our communication takes place using just 500 words. In finance, the top 1% of the planet have as much money as the bottom 50%. And the richest 85 people on the planet have as much wealth as the cumulative wealth of, three, of the bottom 3.5 billion people in the world. Top 85 people. It's true also in influence. Only a handful of all the people on the planet who've ever lived wield the most and the majority of influence over your lives. In history, just a handful of people stand on top as having influenced the human race the most. And as a Christian, I believe that just one man stands on top of all of that. One man who's influenced human history and civilization more than anybody else in all the world, Jesus. H.G. Uh, Wells, the British historian, he wrote, he said, I am an historian, I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth has irrevocably, is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history, he said. Napoleon Bonaparte, the conqueror, he said, I know men and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and I have founded empires, but on what do we rest the creation of our genius? On force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Why is that? How is it that one man lived over 2,000 years ago. How is it that one man can exert such influence over other men, even to this day, and do so not from a position of strength and power? Jesus isn't known for his authority and military might. Jesus influences people from his position of weakness and vulnerability, the image of Christ on the cross as the supreme act of love, his image of weakness. Is it his wisdom, his teaching, his act of love that people know him for? Possibly. But I think more than any of those things, what makes Jesus stand out is his ability to satisfy, nourish, and bring contentment to the human heart. Jesus makes sense of the human condition more than anybody else who's ever lived. And he influences and satisfies and nourishes more people today than anything else. In Psalm 63, verse 5, the writer says, My soul shall be satisfied as with fat and rich food. 
And that's the experience of Christians the world over, that Jesus satisfies them like food satisfies our body. Jesus said of himself, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He says of himself that he is the staple, core, basic part of the human diet for life and meaning and purpose. He points to himself. As a church, we're looking at the centerpiece. We're looking at Jesus over this term up until Easter, showing how he is the centerpiece, not just of the Christian faith, but of the center of the Bible we saw in week one. It's all about him. Points two, looks back to Jesus. We looked in week two, said that Jesus is fully man like us. And as a man, he's able to bring us to God. And last week we saw that Jesus is the seeker and savior of the lost. Well, today I want to show you that Jesus is the bread of life. And I want to tell you that Jesus came not primarily to give bread to the world and solve all the world's problems. He came instead to be bread for the world. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be reading from John chapter 6 in the New Testament. I'm going to start in verse 39 of chapter 5. And we'll read a a well-known story to many of you. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you'll probably be aware of this story. So in John chapter 5, verse 39... Jesus talking to a group of religious people. He said, you search the scriptures or you search the Bible because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And then in chapter 6, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that all these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not be enough to buy bread for each of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. What are they for so many? Jesus, the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that had been done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. Perceiving then that they were to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What I read began with the statement of Jesus saying, I've come to give eternal life. Come to me and you'll have life. And then he feeds a hungry crowd almost as proof that he's able to give life and save people from death, the death of starvation or of hunger. In the Old Testament, when Moses led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he brought them to the wilderness. And there they started to freak out. They started to panic and they grumbled and moaned against their leaders. 
They said, have you brought us into the wilderness to kill us with hunger? Hunger. Few of us in the West know the mental or physical agony of hunger and the fear of starvation with it. What's going on with my microphone? Um, the battery's okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. I'll carry on. A few of us know the, the mental, physical agony that comes with the, and the fear of starvation, the worry of not being able to survive for lack of food. Every pang of hunger that we feel, we self-medicate with food. We get hangry or angry and impatient if we're forced to go even just a few hours without food. And I have a theory that society would be on its knees if we were just forced to fast for two or three days. Um, you watch it on TV programs like The Island, the survivor program of Bear Grylls. I mean, I watch it. It's all I watch. It's all the TV's for, isn't it? Bear Grylls channel. Um, and on there, they, they have arguments all the time because they haven't got any food. When food is scarce, people's social masks drop. Their compassion dries up very quickly. And we all revert to selfish survival mode, making sure that we get enough. That becomes our primary concern. The World Health Organization lists malnutrition as being the biggest contributing factor to child mortality around the globe. Children everywhere dying for lack of food, dying out of, due to starvation. But hunger isn't only used for food. We use hunger in talking about our desires or appetites too. So we describe people or ourselves being hungry for love, hungry to make a difference, hungry for success and meaning. Athletes in sporting competitions, you often hear the commentators say, it's going to come down to whoever's hungriest for this, the hungriest wins. Whoever's starving for success the most, who's willing to climb over or pummel the body of their opponent because of their hunger, their desire to win, to get glory, achievement, notoriety, to suppress the fear of starvation by meaninglessness, or the fear of just being average drives people to do all kinds of things. The historian Arnold Toynbee said that of the 21 greatest civilizations that have existed on the planet, the modern West is the first that does not have or teach its citizens any answer to the question of why they exist. And there's a hunger in the human heart for meaning and purpose, to know why you're here. What's the point of it all? Michael Stipe, the lead singer and writer of the rock band R.E.M., he said, we are floundering more culturally, politically, and spiritually than I can imagine anyone has been in several centuries. It's hard to imagine, but so many people are confused about who they are, what their dreams, hopes, and aspirations and desires are. And apparently, it's kids in the UK that are worse off, the, the most worst, worse off in the world. So a recent UNICEF report discovered that British children were the least happy in the world, in the, at least happy in the Western world, I should say. Uh, rates of depression and anxiety among children have increased by 70% in the last 25 years alone. And the number of young people turning up to A&E with psychiatric disorders has doubled since 2009. It's doubled. As the, the sociologist Alexis de Tocqueville 
who went to the States at the turn of the last century, and he wrote of the, the society there, and he said that there was a strange melancholy that existed in the midst of sadness, in the midst of abundance, sorry. A strange melancholy or sadness that exists in the midst of abundance. We're a society with abundance, but there's a melancholy. There's a hunger for something that's not being delivered to us. We don't have a big story of why we're here. Our biggest story is we're just evolved animals, so there's no real up anymore. There's no real point. The leading cause of death among, me, uh, among men under the age of 40 in this country is suicide, uh, which is a fact that I've, I've heard several times before, and it, it's shocking. But I never really believed it, so I, I looked into it. And um, according to the National Office of National Statistics, the, um, the leading cause of death, if we just move the slide over, John, the leading cause of death uh, for all ages, men under all ages, uh, this is actually small, I wasn't anticipating being in the cafe, um, is heart disease. So for any age uh, of men, the leading cause of death in this country is heart disease. Um, but if you, reduce, if you change the statistics and search for the leading cause of death for men between the ages of 5 to 19, um, here we go, it's uh, top is transport accidents and then underneath running a close second is suicide. Between the ages of 20 and 34, is suicide. Between the ages of 35 and 49, it's suicide. It seems that if you can reach 50 without killing yourself, suicide isn't your problem, heart disease is. But up until that point, it's suicide that's taking our young men. And that's heartbreaking. It's the societies with a real problem when it's young men can't bear to be alive anymore. I understand suicide's a, a complex issue. But the fact that it's so far ahead of all other causes of death. In fact, suicide seems predominantly to be a Western problem. It's the privilege of the rich West that people take their own lives. Children are dying for lack of food the world over. Adults are dying for lack of meaning or for spiritual food, for purpose. And Jesus offers eternal life. He gives it for free. He taught it and then he proved it by giving bread to a crowd and then when they tried to make him a king, he left because Jesus didn't come primarily to give bread, but to be bread for the world. We're going to read on, find out what happens next in John 6. So after, after Jesus feeds the crowd, he leaves. His disciples go on a boat and then in the middle of the watch, Jesus walks on water to greet them. Uh, they arrive at the, the shore on the other side and the next day the crowd, having seen that Jesus has gone, they themselves go over the lake to catch up with Jesus. And it says in verse 25 onwards, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. And then in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus proves that he's the one who's come to give life. He does it with some loaves. And then he, put, he addresses the crowd and says, the thing about the, the bread was never really just about your hunger. It's actually about my identity. It's more about who I am and less about your appetites is what he says to them. Because see, aware of the gnawing hunger that they feel, the crowd follow Jesus. And they want Jesus to give them something then to sink their teeth into to get to grips with. We all do. We want Jesus to give us something that will save us. But he stops them short because he says, I'm not come to give you, you don't really know what you need. It's not bread that you need. It's something bigger, something more significant than that. Verse 26, I, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They had the, and so he seems to draw these two things apart, that there are signs that Jesus does, and then there are, is the fact that they weren't hungry anymore as a result. He separates them out, that this wasn't just a miracle for miracle's sake, it was a sign from heaven. And signs occur quite a lot, particularly in, in John's gospel. There's several signs that John says that Jesus performs to tell people about who he is, to show his glory. So the question is, well, what's a sign? How is a sign different from a miracle? Well, a sign is something that diverts attention away from itself. Um, it's as though the glory of God existed in heaven and a beam of light came down from heaven to the earth as Jesus broke the little boy's lunch in part and distributed it. And the purpose was that people would see this miracle and their eyes would be drawn up to the glory of God to see not just, I'm not hungry anymore, but to see, oh, the glory of God. To grasp who he is. Imagine living in a world that is perpetually and always dark or grey. I suppose you don't need to imagine. Welcome to England and uh, our winters. Um, but imagine it just being grey. There's no sky. There's nothing beyond. You don't you don't know any colors or anything like that. And then imagine one day a bolt of light breaking in from the outside and illuminating something. We would be fascinated by it. We would be drawn to it. But the purpose then isn't just to, like, to fill our curiosity. The purpose would be for us to wonder, where did that light come from? But instead what we do is we see remarkable things and we want to enshrine them. This bolt of light has come and lit up this chair. I'm going to enshrine this chair. I'm going to go on pilgrimages to this chair. This chair must be very impressive. Instead of thinking, there's a light source outside of this world. That's what the things of life are meant to do for us. They're meant to be signs that point to something outside of our existence. 
Creation is meant to act like that. Sex, food, friendship, love. They are good gifts that are meant to point to a good giver of those gifts. But instead, what we do is we become fascinated by the reflections. It's as though you're walking past a a car window or someone's front room and you, you catch your reflection as you walk and just check your hair's okay. And because of that, you you don't look through the window to see what's on the other side of it because you've been stopped short by your reflection. The things in this world fascinate us, but they're meant to point to one who provided it and gave it to us. It's a story of Narcissus from Greek mythology. He was cursed to fall in love with his reflection. So every time he saw his reflection in a pool of water, he would be transfixed and stay there for hours just staring at his own image. Now, of course, we'd never do that. But the beautiful, the good, the impressive, miraculous things in this world are signs of the glory of God that's come down. And Jesus said, you're here, you're come to me. you've come to me not because you understood this sign, but because you, you just want me to perform miracles and satisfy your stomachs. But I've come not primarily to give bread, but to be bread. It's not when you, you point somewhere. Uh, if I want my toddler to go and go somewhere, I say, oh, look at that, Toby, go over there. And, tod- and toddlers like dogs, they're quite similar. Toddlers like dogs, instead of following the finger to the source you're pointing at, they just stare at your finger. There, go over there, watch that thing over there. And they just stare at your finger, and the dogs are like, <laughs> and the toddlers are like, oh, okay, fine. Jesus' miracles and signs are pointers for us that we're to follow and go, oh, that's who he is. And they missed it. What sign do you give us to prove who you say you are? You could almost imagine Jesus scratching his head. What do you mean what sign? What I just did. There are some Christians and some Christian teachers who miss this as well. They teach that Jesus has come mostly to give bread. He's come mostly to satisfy our our desires for health or wealth or meaning or happiness people who preach and say that jesus wants to make you rich jesus has come to give you a car to give you a promotion at work if you will give you an amazing spouse i change microphone no this is fine okay (laughs) i'm looking at alex at the back i trust whatever alex says i do um alex is the bread of life some people teach, if Jesus has come to give you a happy family, an amazing marriage. And if you just give him enough money, if you just give him enough of your time, he'll fix all your problems for you in the world. It's wrong. It's not what Jesus came for. He hasn't come to give you bread. He hasn't come to solve your problems. In fact, the opposite is true. He said, I've come to bring division. I've come to turn daughters against mothers and sons against fathers. Because Jesus requires and demands our complete allegiance a complete devotion. You see, if we love Jesus for what Jesus will give to us, then we'll leave Jesus when the money runs out, when he stops answering our prayers in the way that we'd want him to, when we're unhappy. Jesus, you promised to make me happy. No, I didn't. I never promised to make you happy. In fact, I promised the opposite. He says, if you come to me, the world will hate you. You'll be rejected by men. It's not very happy, is it? Our happiness is actually overrated by us we think what we need most in life is to be happy that's not true i mean it's the problem that my kids have 
That's why they argue with me every day about cleaning their teeth because I'm committed to their health and they're committed to their happiness. I don't want to clean my teeth, Dad. I hate cleaning my teeth, Dad. It makes me unhappy to clean my teeth, Dad. To which I say, I don't care. Go and clean your teeth. I never knew before I became a parent that that would be such a daily battle. Wear me down and expose all of my sin. There it is, and I've got a little bit of public therapy for it, so thank you. (laughs) Crowds are fickle, and God is not a sugar daddy who comes to meet all of our needs. He's not a genie that says, have every wish you want. Jesus hasn't come primarily to give us bread, but to be bread. So the sign is about his identity, and his identity is that he's the bread of life. So the question then comes, how do we get this bread of life? Whatever you're talking about, Jesus, how do we get this? It sounds good. I need life. We need some meaning, some purpose, something to live for. And Jesus says, he says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Do not devote your life, your money, your energy, your attention on things that waste away. Don't spend every waking minute just working so hard to make yourself comfortable or happy or even healthy. Don't devote all of your waking moments to massaging your social media image. Don't waste your life on Facebook. Don't Instagram every dinner you have and devote all of your energy to creating a false image of your life. Jesus says it just wastes. It counts for nothing. Don't waste your energy or devote your attention to go after this glorious, contented, happy retirement. Don't devote all of your energy to perfecting your house so that it's without fault and blemish and is the perfect reflection of your beautiful personality and your brilliant complexity and your creative design. It just ruins, it's gone. We're in a town where a lot of people move here to retire And it's important that you hear the retirement is not the last chapter of your life. A lot of people work hard to think, I want to enjoy the last chapter of my life. I've had my heartaches and difficulties, and now I'm here for perfection. And I've arrived at Eden, otherwise known as Seaford, or Seaford if you've been here long enough. Some of my neighbors are like this. They live in an idyllic, peaceful place. But if anyone makes any noise, or for a second there's to park a car outside their house, they're straight out there in a flash. How dare you intrude on my paradise? This is the last chapter of my book, the book of my life, and it's to be perfect. This is not the last chapter of your life. The last chapter of your life begins when you die, and you go to be with him for eternity. And actually, when you're there, you'll realize all of this was just the forward to your book. <laughs> it was just the preface. It was tiny, it feels long, but it was small compared to the eternity that awaits. I'm reading a book at the moment. It's, a, it's an academic, thick, heavy book. that I don't really understand it, but it makes me feel clever. And before I bought it, I knew it was a big book because I'd seen it on other people's shelves. And I thought, oh, it turns out I need to buy that book if I want to feel clever. I'll buy that book, but I'm not going to buy it and paper form because I'll never read it so I bought it on Kindle which means I can sit there clicking for hours and never be intimidated by the size of this book 
And I did one morning. I sat there for hours reading this book. Click, 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 going through, click, click. click. I'm thinking, I'm reading a lot. This is a lot of reading. I'm learning a lot. I'm going to give Andrew Wilson a run for his money before long. And then click, finish the chapter and thought, right, here I am. I've been reading a long time. Glance down to the bottom of the book. 1% read. I just thought, what on earth? What stupid book is this? Your life is like that. Your retirement is not the last chapter in your book. You'll turn the page of death and you'll wake up and realize this eternal life is what you were made for. That's what you're here for. Your life isn't about retirement, house, money, career, promotion, food, social media, friendships. As good as those things are, it's not about those things. Life is about Jesus. He is the bread of life, he says. And he says, don't, don't labor for those things. Um, verse 27, do not labor for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life. So this sounds like Jesus saying, don't work and devote yourselves to those things. Work for the eternal life. To which the people said, oh, so what must we do then? What work must we perform? We're all into a bit of fi- fix it and self-help and personal spiritual DIY. I'm not religious, I'm spiritual because I'm 21st century. What should I do to be spiritual? Jesus says in verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. In other words, stop working and trust. Cut off all other options for fulfillment and satisfaction in this life. Stop looking to those things and trust, believe in the Son of God. Look for satisfaction in Him, he says. The work of God is that we believe. C.S. Lewis who said the purpose of an open mind is like the purpose of an open mouth. To close it when you find something substantial enough. Close your mind onto Christ. Let him satisfy you. An open mind's a lovely idea if if you don't believe there is any purpose to life. But an open mind, like an open mouth, is useful only in so much as you've got room to make room for the substantial, the significant thing that's going to nourish you. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I've come to give you life. Therefore, get your teeth into him by believing in him. Eating is believing or believing is eating. It's how you lay hold and eat Jesus. Verse 51, it's what he says, I am the living bread that's come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. You want to live forever? Want nourishment and satisfaction? Believe Jesus. Put your trust in him. To trust something is to love it. To allow it to have your heart. See, some people will work very hard in life and die old. Others will die young. Others will be very lazy in life and have a comfortable life. Others work hard and life's painful and brutal. Life isn't fair. Some of you will have a life free of a lot of pain and discomfort. Others of you know what it is to have pain every day. For the doctors to not be able to fix it. Satisfaction and contentment in life doesn't come from our circumstances. I've known people who've been broken, penniless, and in pain every day, and still they've said to me, Jesus satisfies me more than anything else. 
I was talking to someone yesterday who phoned me whose husband's in hospital at the moment awaiting an operation, a couple in this church. He's got every reason to be scared. What the doctors are saying gives her every reason to be scared. And yet still she says, oh, God is so good. I can trust him. He satisfies us. He brings us joy. I know some of the times in my life when I've been saddest or had most reason to be saddest, there have also been times where in and amongst all that sadness, I've seen Jesus, the treasure of Jesus, and he's satisfied me more than anything else. I know um, um, approaching the death of my own father, I was so scared about that day when I'd lose him. And yet when that day came, I found Jesus was still there. He was still able to satisfy me. He was still able to nourish my soul. That's why Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, I've learned the secret of contentment. He says, I've learned how to be happy, whether I've got plenty or, or nothing. Whether I've been brought low or whether I'm abounding, Paul says, I've learned the secret of contentment because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He says, I count everything else as loss or rubbish compared to the surpassing joy of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, of being found in him. He says to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ because I'm with Christ, to die is gain because I'm with Christ. Life is about Jesus, he is the bread of life. See the gospel, the message of Christianity isn't about a thing at all. It's not about eternal life, it's not like tick on this box and you'll go to heaven when you die. The gospel isn't primarily about forgiveness even. It's not primarily about hope. The gospel is about him. Jesus isn't just one more topic of conversation for the Christian. We have in common the fact that we play sport and we, get, we, you know, we like the same food. And we also have in common the fact that we both think Jesus is nice and we like singing songs to Jesus. Jesus isn't one more thing that we have in common. Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, my gospel is the gospel of the glory of Christ. In Christ is found the highest beauty, wisdom, compassion, strength, grace, power, authority, and love. And joy and life always comes when you behold something beautiful. Consider the things in your life that you think are particularly beautiful. Maybe it's a landscape or a friend's dependability or your wife's body or a favorite film or a piece of music or a book that you love or a painting that you like. Things that are beautiful to us bring us joy. That's why we revisit them. It's why we go walking in the same place every week or we read the, the same books. We rewatch the same films. We gaze at the same painting because of the joy it brings us. It's why I play the same games over and over again with my children. It's the joy that it gives us. When we behold the beauty of Christ and see him, it gives us joy when we learn to love him. If we seek salvation, we're taught that it is of him. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in his anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in his dominion. If purity, it's in his conception. If gentleness, it appears in his birth. For by his birth, he was made like us in all respects, that he might learn to feel our pain. These are the words of John Calvin, who wrote 500 years ago. He says, if we seek redemption, it lies in his death. 
If we seek acquittal, it's in his condemnation. If we seek release from the curse, it's in his cross. If satisfaction, it's in his sacrifice. If we seek purification, it's in his blood. If reconciliation, in his descent into the grave. If death of sinful habits, it's in his tomb. If newness of life, it's in his resurrection. If immortality, it's in the same. If inheritance of the heavenly kingdom, in his entrance into heaven. If we seek protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings, it's in his kingdom. If to face judgment without fear in the power given to him to judge. In short, since he is rich in every kind of good that we want, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Close our mouths and our minds and our hearts on him. Eat the bread of life by believing and coming to him. Christians, we make the Christian life about so many other things. As human beings, we want so many things. But Price's principle of productivity states that only a small fraction of producers of something will be prolific. Well, of all of the breads out there, of all the things and ideas and worldviews that people look to for hope and help, only one is the bread of life. Only one will give you what you want. We are what we love, ultimately. The reason you and I behave the way we do is because of the things that we love the most. The reason I would tell a lie is because I love your opinion of me more than I love the truth. The reason that I wouldn't give or I do give is because of the loves in my heart. Jesus, the bread of life, says this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Every week as we gather as a church, we break bread, we take juice as a remembrance of his death for us. Uh, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took some bread and broke it and said, this is my body given to you. It marks a new covenant. It marks the day that you can come to me and find all your nourishment in me. And every week as a church, Christians the world over break bread and remember he's the bread of life. We eat physical bread to remind us that he's the spiritual bread who nourishes us. Let me pray to finish and then we're going to respond by breaking bread.